Hello and welcome back to the Energy Flux podcast. It's my great pleasure to be joined today by Ira Joseph, the Head of Global Generating Fuels and Electric Power at S&P Global, the market intelligence and global ratings firm. Ira, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Seb. It's a real honor. I appreciate you, uh, appreciate you having me on the show. All right. Well, it's um, it, it's quite a privilege to have somebody from your vantage point to to talk about what's happening in energy markets and um, the energy transition. But uh, f- I think for the benefit of the uninitiated, perhaps you could um, just just explain a little bit th- th- that vantage point to, to people. What it is you do at Platts and the the kind of perspective from which you view the markets. Oh, okay. So, Seb, as you said, I'm head of the generating fuels and electricity pricing at uh, at, at Platts. Uh, I have uh, about oh, 32 years now of experience covering gas markets in you know various capacities and. Uh, and in my my entire time doing this, I've never really seen sort of a, sort of an exciting and unpredictable market as as we have right now. So at Platts, we we certainly assess prices all over the world, uh, U.S., Europe, uh, JKM, of course, uh, Henry Hub, uh, TTF, NBP, etc. So you know we really do look at things from a pricing perspective, but also from an analytical perspective as well. Right. So, so, so having the head of pricing uh, to talk about energy markets at a time of extreme pricing, this should be interesting. Um, uh, and, and today, <laughs> in particular. <laughs> right. Well, t- tell us. Tell us what what have you seen today in the markets? It's been crazy. Well, I, you know, it looks like uh, European gas prices are sort of operating in an opposite mode of sort of every other thing out there that seems to be priced. I mean, obviously there's a, there's a concern out there that, uh, uh, that the risk is going up of, of, of supply shortages in Europe, you know, over the next day, you know, and, and over the next week and, and, and maybe longer, we'll see how, how long this goes on. But uh, obviously financial markets are looking at it and are perceiving it in a different way than necessarily those who are actually, you know, in the, in the physical world of, of, of European gas. Right. So, so in, until just uh, a, a few days ago, then I was looking at you know, European gas hubs and we had this armada of LNG, mostly from the US, heading over to, to dock at European regasification terminals. And, and then, you know, prices kind of relaxed. And, and I was kind of thinking, well, you know, maybe we're out of the woods. What's your take? Yeah. Do you think we're, we're not out of the woods? <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't seem like we're out of the woods uh, as of yet. I mean, when you look at the numbers, the 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 send out on LNG in Europe has been extraordinary this month. I was just looking at the numbers before. You know, we've been at high on some days is close to 500 mmcm a day. I mean, the average for the month right now, I just looked, was four, uh, 398. But but the the, da- the the daily numbers have been really high and low. I'll, I'll put out a chart on Twitter on this in a little while. Because I it really struck me because you know usually the send out numbers are pretty consistent but they're like all over the place now which kind of reflects the broader nature of the market right now and and as you said you know the market you know prices look like everything looked like it was cooling off cooling off cooling off until you know the weekend when things got sort of uh, got got sort of hyped up again and so uh, I would say fundamentally the market the reason prices were getting you know, weaker was because the outlook was getting was getting softer on, for, on a fundamental basis. You'd have relatively warm weather in Europe. You had more and more LNG supply coming in. 
uh, and certainly Asia was pushing LNG away. It looks like demand was weaker there. And so it was definitely cooling off. But then, you know, of course, all of a sudden the risk premium or the, the risk of supply has gone up. So I would say like what really happened kind of in the last week or two is that if you looked at pure fundamentals, the market has softened and, and, the, and the price coming down reflect that sort of softening of the market. But then the sort of risk to the to supply in particular has gone way, way up. And, and certainly in the past day or two, uh, it has reflected and sort of countermanded what what, you know, what had other been otherwise been looking like prices were, were 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 softening up a bit there. So but, you know, risk premium matters. I mean, there's there, there are risks out there for sure. And, and what are those risks? What, what is the specific factor that's driving risk premiums up right now, do you think? Well, it's a combination of still, you know, European storage levels are relatively weak. Now, withdrawal rates have definitely come off as more LNG has come in. But if, you know, everyone's just looking at Russia and Russian flows and, you know, they're already lower, you know, they're, they're already down to around 250, uh, you know, in, into the EU, uh, you know, from 400 around this uh, 200 M, 250 MCM a day from 400 last year. Uh, but, you know, if we were if if we were to lose any or, or more of that, then obviously then that 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 would be kind of bullish for price. Yeah. MCM, that's a thousand cubic meters per day, right? A million cubic meters per day. A million per day, right. It was, it was a okay. capital M, <laughs> not too small. Capital, I, I, yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't see that on this audio. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting. I was just looking. The, the Russian flows into the EU uh, last year at this time were 400 uh, M, MCM a day and pr- pretty much were that all the way into September. And now we're at 250. So obviously the difference is 150. What's the capacity of Nord Stream 2? 150. Uh, maybe that's a coincidence, but it was uh, it, it was something that I that that really stood out when I just happened to look at the numbers when we were right before the pod, podcast started. Right. So so Europe is short a Nord Stream two's worth of gas right now. Hmm. Uh, well, I, I don't know. I wouldn't say short or long. It's just there, there, there's definitely less Russian gas, and by by the amount that happens to be the capacity of Nord Stream two. Interesting. Um, well, okay, you've brought up Nord Stream two. We, we, we let's let's talk about that. Um, it's packed with gas, right? They they filled it with gas, and they said um, we're ready to turn it on whenever you certify us. Then we can start flowing this gas through. Um, all things being equal, and nothing's equal right now. When might uh-huh. that be? Oh, I I'm not uh, I'm not on the forecasting side of my business, so I don't really want to. Uh to say, but, uh, you know, there, there is certainly a timeline out there that, 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 you know, Nord Stream 2, you know, like you said, it's filled. So if they wanted to turn it on tomorrow, they can turn it on tomorrow. But obviously there's a lot of regulatory hurdles at the German level, the EU level and, and uh, other issues that will, will, will take, take some time to do. I mean, I think Platts Analytics are our, our latest number that, that we're, that we're putting in our, in our forecast is October of this year. Okay. Okay. Well, obviously, there's a lot of geopolitics around this. Um, I know that's probably not your your area of expertise, but you you probably got a good handle on it because it impacts on pricing quite a lot. Um, can you kind of just talk around the issues that that, that kind of could could alter that outlook? Um, I mean, obviously, there's there's high level talks between the U.S. and uh, Russia over what's happening in Ukraine. Um, do, you, do you think that could have a bearing on on European gas flows, be it through Nord Stream two or indeed through the legacy pipelines going through Ukraine? 
Well, I think even the way you phrase the question is like is like a big issue. It's like this has gone from being a Ukrainian Russia EU issue to basically like a US Russia issue. And I mean, I think that's a really significant change. Uh, as I was just saying to my wife earlier today because she was asking me about like, you know, Russia, Ukraine and like and like the 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 genesis of all this is this gas pipeline. This is kind of where it all started. So it is all where it could probably be worked out, I, I would imagine. But there's going to have to be sort of everyone is going to have to be in the room and not just the U.S. and Russia. It's going to have to involve Ukraine. It's going to have to involve the EU as well. And like you said, you know, this thing could literally be turned on tomorrow if 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 uh, if the right approvals were through. Well, maybe not tomorrow, but let's say the day after. But it is the origin story for this entire, you know, thing that has gone way beyond the opening or the not opening of a pipeline. It's become a huge political issue involving the military, involving, you know, uh, you know, the heads of state, uh, which started as sort of a simple exercise to sort of recognize the risk to Ukraine uh, uh, from the Ukrainian perspective that the startup of Venice 2 would, would have or Nord Stream 2 would have. Uh, on the Ukrainian market and on the Ukrainians' role in the broader European gas market. Right. It, it, it's funny. I mean, I, well, I, th I think I would kind of preface this by saying uh, maybe the kind of uh, there are issues to do with Ukraine's um, uh, proximity to towards NATO um, is is probably an aggravating aggravating factor too. But when you when you take a stamp a look, uh, take a step back, you look at it. It's like, well, okay, so you know, Russia wants to start operations of Nord Stream 2. They want to supply gas to Europe. Europe needs gas right now. And Russia also needs a way to step away from the Ukrainian border and kind of save face if they could get a, if they could, you know, if not turning on Nord Stream 2 was a way for them to allow them to do that. And it would also bring down prices potentially on European hubs, which are very overheated, then would that not be a win win? Well, I, yeah, I, I mean, I think it would, but I would take it a step further than that. And I, and this has sort of been how I've my position all along, how I felt is that the more gas that actually flows through Nord Stream 2 is the more gas that flows into the EU and then potentially flows into Ukraine. And if the goal for Ukraine is to get closer to the EU, and I'm not talking about NATO here or anything like that, but to get closer of the, to the European market, the best way to do that is to have the maximum amount of commercial gas flow between Ukraine and, and, and the EU and, and, and the market. And and I thought, at least, that in particular, that the, the consolidation of the German market into a single spot trading uh, THE hub would actually also help that uh, going forward. But it, it doesn't seem like the the powers that be uh, seem seem to feel that way. And 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 as I said, this has gone like way beyond an issue of whether we should turn a pipeline on or not, whether it needs to have third party access or not, where it needs to have third party access, at what point in the pipeline, to a much much bigger issue here that has really been. You know that suddenly involves things like acronyms like NATO and things like tanks. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it, it's very unfortunate. Cause it's becoming very complicated, and obviously U.S. involvement. U.S. is very much against Nord Stream Two, and it's been pretty consistent across two very different administrations. Um, and yet, kind of switching on Nord Stream Two might kind of help to pacify things and also bring down prices and improve perhaps economic stability in this region. Well, the U.S. role in this has been really interesting because, I mean, obviously it doesn't have like a direct, direct commercial role in this, but it has certainly taken the political lead. And 
And definitely Ukraine in particular has been very effective lobbying, you know, the U.S. Congress and, and the EU to some extent on on getting involved in this and taking a stand on this, uh, you know, the, you know, so it's 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 definitely gone beyond this issue of, you know, whether <laughs> whether Russia or Ukraine or the EU is meeting its uh, you know uh, all of the directives and all the all the third party access rules that those of us who are sort of in the gas market on both a commercial and a policy basis you know tend to focus on on a day to day basis yeah how much understanding or awareness do you think there is um on maybe outside of the kind of energy sphere on the more political side of things that um you know lng liquefied natural gas can't actually replace 100% of russian gas even on a good day um, and so there needs to be a more of a kind of strategic view of like, wh- wh- how does Europe meet its, its, its gas requirements during the transition? Um, because it seems to be like the, the very basic political argument is, well, you know, buy more LNG. And that's kind of perhaps the motivation for U.S. intervention against Nord Stream 2 is to kind of sell more, more U.S. LNG into Europe. Um, it, but it, it seems like there's, there's not really an appreciation that, that that's not going to solve the problem and we're still going to have this issue of like how Europe deals with Russia, how Europe meets its gas demand and, and how, it, how it kind of contracts with Gazprom. Yeah, I think, I, I think there are a lot of people in the US government who do appreciate it. And, you know, I've talked to many of them for many years. There's a lot of people who know the European gas market and the LNG market very, very well. The leadership, however, is a different story. And obviously their, their goals and their agenda is very, very different than than those of us in or outside the government who who sort of understands who understand what what the commercial implications of this are, and um, and you know I think I think also there tends to be sort of like more long term thinking you know bleeding into sort of short term issues here. Clearly, there are clearly clearly the us and, and and people who support the you know you know us exports of gas certainly you know would like more of it to go in but obviously you can't just sort of turn it on the us is exporting lng at capacity it's uh, a new train is just ramping up now that's going to add another 27 mcm a day and then another one probably later this quarter so but like you said it's not going to make up it, it doesn't come close to making up for a potential shortfall in the market particularly in the winter uh, and even if it's not in the winter, if it's in the summer months, you're just going to fall behind on, on gas injections again. So in terms of price and its and its influence on the forward curve, it's still going to have the same effect, even if prompt demand and prompt demand, you know, literally is half in the summer of what it is in the winter. So, you know, the, the issue, the issue then just becomes an issue of storage. Right. And so, yeah, you talk about, you know, the the. the operational plants are at capacity to, to bring more on <clears throat> excuse me to bring more on they would need uh, to secure investments and to do that they need a degree of certainty that they're going to have offtake they're going to have people buying the gas um, what do you think is stopping european players particularly from from signing those deals because we haven't seen that we've seen china sign up for some long-term deals with u.s Qatar and, and Russia when the gas markets tightened, but European companies have been pretty conspicuous by their absence. What's what's holding them back? Do you think? Well, well, they, they have signed some deals. I mean, Venture Global has has picked up quite a few deals, you know, which is why it, it, it's almost at the commissioning stage. And they were like, you know, somewhere between a half a million and a million tons apiece. Not not huge deals, but you know, large enough deals, obviously, to get the financing for the project to get the project going. You know, has that happened in the last, you know, 12 months during the COVID period uh, or, or 24 months? Not not as much. But, 
the, clearly there has been there has been some, but as you point out, and you're right, you know most of the larger deals and most of the headline pieces are definitely coming from China in the past in the past six months. But but I do think you know once once the dust settles here and once the seas calm, you know I do think you know when we when we see a rewriting of how the European gas market is going to operate in the future, you know I can see certainly more contract gas being signed. Um, you know, in terms of LNG, but I could frankly also see more contract gas being signed from from Russia as well. Really, from Russia? Yeah. Long time deals. Uh, well, depends what you mean by long, but you know, not spot not spot purchases. Let, let's put let's put it that way. But yes, I I, I think uh, you know I I do think that that's in play here. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, there Russia is still the low cost gas supplier to the European market and no one can match that, not even the Qataris. And so they, they always have that as an advantage uh, in the market. And so, like I said, when the dust settles, you know, I, I can see, you know, something coming out of this where, uh, you know, there's some, you know, th- th- where something could hap- happen on the contract level. That could be wrong, but like I, that, that to me seems like the logical, you know, uh, movement forward here. Because the Russians, right, but- uh, the Russians, the Russians have, you know, this is not a new thing with them talking about long-term contracts. I mean, they've been talking about the need for long-term gas contracts from the day, you know, the spot market opened. And they've they've been harping on this for years and years and years. And, you know, in, in some ways, they've acquiesced by uh, opening up the ESP market, which, you know, was, was pushing spot gas into the market. And in other ways, you know, they've not, you know, so they they they, they have adjusted to the times, but at no point did they ever not say, we really would prefer long-term, you know, gas contracts, you know, to sign in the market, and maybe this will change that. Yeah, but, well, yeah. So the, the the issue around Gazprom, of course, is um, they argued for long-term contracts, but but liberalisation and market-based pricing in the EU has actually saved consumers a lot of money, hasn't it? Um, compared to oil indexation and, and buying against those old contracts. So, but now the tables have turned. So, so maybe yeah. looking at it in a different way. <laughs> Right. No, I mean, for the last 10 years, you know, for more days than not, uh, you know, and more months than not, you know, it was better to be buying, you know, you know, spot index gas than, than buying oil index or, or a contract gas. That's absolutely been true. There's some exceptions in there, obviously, when demand spiked and other things happened. But but by and large, it has been it has been, you know, a really, really successful endeavor to move to move the EU market towards towards spot indexation and spot trade. But like you said, uh, you know, n- this year looks a lot different <laughs> and this year looks a lot different for, you know, you know, a lot of reasons. Yeah, I've, I've just pulled up some data. So uh, the International Energy Agency said in, I think, October last year that Europe saved about 70 billion dollars in lower gas import bills cumulatively over, uh, cumulatively over the past decade. Yeah. But in just the last uh months of 2021 then almost half of that 30 billion dollars has been erased from the massive discrepancy in in spot prices shooting above oil indexation yeah oh i didn't see that that's that's those are some really interesting numbers well yeah i mean in in from the middle of december till you know early january there were there were cargos there were there were cargos transacting you know that were that that, that were in the black 100 million dollars per cargo yeah. You know, we, that's 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 a lot of money for uh, three BCF of gas, or what am I saying? Like around eighty-two, eighty-three BC uh, million cubic meters of gas. I mean, 
those that we had never seen numbers like that, you know, profitability on LNG cargoes obviously was, was nowhere near that before, before then. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, there's, there's a lot of money changing hands here for sure. <laughs> a lot more than before. Yeah, and, and it's, He's right. And and it's such a massive turnaround from obviously 2020 when we saw shut-ins across the Gulf Coast and elsewhere and uh, customers yes. who were on, on the hook to lift cargoes from companies like Chenier paying tens of millions of dollars to on penalties for, for, for not lifting those cargoes. Well, that was the, that's the other odd number is that if, if those, I think it was 175 cargoes that were cancelled, 172, I can't remember the exact number. But whatever that number is, that's more or less what the European storage deficit is now versus the versus normal. So if those cargos actually would have been produced and theoretically all exported to Europe or, or exported somewhere else, which have, would have allowed more LNG from somewhere else to come into Europe, the market would be a lot more imbalanced. So, you know, there was a really bearish reason in 2020 to cancel cargos. And now, you know, the market flipped around, went the other way, has become very, very bullish and 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 that volume, you know, in retrospect, it would have it would have been you know better, particularly for the European market, Asian market too, you know, to have that volume in the market at this point. It all, you know, it it, it all counts in the end, and it all adds up over time. But was there anywhere to put the gas? Because I recall freight rates went absolutely ballistic because people were using LNG carriers just to store excess gas because they had literally nowhere to put it. They couldn't get into the terminals. They couldn't get capacity. They couldn't get into the storage tanks. In 2020 or 2021? In, in, in 20, when there was the, the glut situation just after the first wave of lockdowns, um, there was a lot of kind of energy vessels just floating on the water holding gas because there was nowhere to put it. Oh, that, that was certainly true. I mean, but there was a place to put it. It was just that TTF, it was just that European prices were so weak that it didn't make financial sense to do so. There was no, there was no margin there to do it. So that kind of backed up the system to the point where cancellations made more sense than than pushing gas into into european storage even you know basing it on the if you looked at like summer winter spreads it still didn't make sense and that's why the cancellations happened remember if you put gas into european storage you're not going to draw it out till the winter so it's as much about the summer winter spread as as as, as the prompt spread or one month forward spread right and and we've we've seen uh that kind of trading sentiment acting a kind of in, in, in a sort of not not helping from a security of supply standpoint. So I, am I right in thinking that towards at the start of this uh, 2021, there was like low injection because people expected there were like quite high prompt prices and people expected prices to be low in the in the kind of autumn winter time because Nord Stream 2 was going to come online. Right. And so there wasn't that incentive to put gas into storage, even though there was a kind of strategic ra- rationale to do it, but not a not an economic one. Well, it wasn't just Nord Stream 2 is that I, you know, even ourselves, like we had assumed, you know, Russia would, like they always have, you know, ship around 400 MCM a day of gas into the EU. And then that stopped. Like, it just stopped. And and and, and then it started to drop a lot. Uh, you know, Russia has been, you know, been supplying gas on a regular basis to the EU for, you know, 40, 50 years. And then, you know, starting in July and August, that number started coming off quite a bit at a time of year when it typically either say that it stays at that level or rises so it was a combination Nord Stream 2 and a fall off in Russian gas volume supply into the market that you know we had never seen anything like that before Russia as 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 you know I I think I've I've put on Twitter many times produces a lot of gas or used to produce a lot of gas on a seasonal basis you know their exports were not as seasonal necessarily as their production but uh 
there's a lot of swing capacity. Most of the world's, uh, you know, swing production capacity occurs between, you know, the winter and summer in, in, inside the Russian market. So there's definitely volume there, whether they choose to export it or not, or store it or use more domestically has really been the, the core of the change in the market. And so they produce a record amount of gas in 2021, but their, their exports, you know, dropped considerably at the same time they produced a lot of gas. So that really has been the big change. And that just doesn't affect Europe, as, as you rightly point out, it affects the entire world, because that means it's going to draw in more, you know, gas from elsewhere. I mean, I, we had long, you know, forecast and talked about and analyzed, you know, a TTF JKM inversion in the summer months. For the life of me, I never would have predicted one in the winter months like we're having right now. But when you have less gas coming through the pipeline system and storage levels this low, uh, you know, they are, they, clearly the, 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 the structure was there that, that TTF would trade, you know, at a premium to JKM, even in the winter, which was really surprising to me. Yeah. How, how do you account for that, that discrepancy, the, the kind of the missing gas exports? Because obviously it's at Gazprom's whim, whether they export beyond their contractual obligations or not. Is it is it that the gas wasn't there, or that there was more demand for having a more severe winter in Russia, or what? What, what would you say? I, what would you honestly, I don't, I, I, I don't have an answer to that question. All I know is they're producing a lot more gas and exporting a lot more and exporting a lot less gas. Certainly, they're consuming more. If you look at their uh, power generation numbers in gas, have gone way up, and that has displaced coal burn, and even their coal their coal exports have gone up. As, as a reflection now. Now, why has their gas demand gone up so much in the country? It's hard to say. I mean, people, domestic and business prices, uh, you know, for gas, you know, burner tip prices are, you know, are under $3. I, I can't remember the last few, last few months, but let's just say it's between $240 and $2.60 per million BTU. So, you know, it makes commercial sense to burn a lot of gas, whether it makes commercial sense relative to burning coal is another matter. But, but you know, it's, it's, it's not like... Uh, you know, when you look at those prices compared to European prices, clearly a decision was made to market more, uh, you know, from a revenue perspective, uh, I'm sure for Gazprom, you know, they're kind of looking at like, okay, why, why am I selling gas for 280 rather than, you know, whatever the number got up to 35, you know, in Europe, but they're, you know, they're, that, that, that was a choice that's been made. And, and clearly, you know, for, for whatever reasons, you know, they, the gas has been burned and, and, and stored more, uh, you know, domestically in the Russian market this year. Okay. Um, and I've heard you say on another podcast, podcast recently that you think we might return to something, quotes, unquote, resembling normality, maybe 2022, 2023. Um, what, what, what does normality look like now? Can you, can you describe that, like the path back to normality, how we would get there and how long it might last? Because this is a very volatile market now. Right. Well, my, my colleagues in Platts Analytics, you know, long term had been forecasting, you know, JKM prices in sort of the six to nine range, uh, you know, you uh, European prices in the four to six dollar range. And, you know, let's say Henry Hub prices in the in the two to three dollar fifty range. So like that, that is something, you know, what we call like a bearable or central tendency price. You know, we would expect the market to go, you know, back at some point down into levels that make that which makes sense. I mean, remember, when you have prices this high, the effect on long term demand growth or, you know, can be pretty significant. Also, it affects everything about investment, decision making, 
you know, you, the higher you have, the higher and longer you have high gas prices, the more it brings, you know, a further and, and, and more significant renewable investments into play, you know, and, and, and changes the sort of policy arc of the way people are looking and the way governments in particular are looking at gas, not just as a bridge fuel, but as a, as a base load and as an intermittency solution. So, you know, high gas prices are great for producers temporarily, not great for for consumers, but you know they're, they're 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 we we are way outside of what I would call like a sweet spot sweet spot that would both induce you know more gas gas production and LNG production, but also would induce more um, you know gas demand at the same time. The, it, it's 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 definitely a two sided coin here, and the demand side and the demand at these prices, it's often forgotten how how. Um, how uh, elastic potentially the growth of demand could be, you know, longer term. Right. But but in the kind of more interim period, maybe to sort of 2030, then we have a, I think we have a slightly clearer view that there's going to be some residual demand quite a lot. Um, and and is that contracted off? Is there, a, is there an argument to be made for more strategic procurement to, to avoid going back into a situation where, Europe is fighting Asia for cargoes and paying above like a, a premium, a winter heating premium, and then charging it back to consumers who are not very happy about that. Yeah, well, I mean, there's two sides of this. I mean, I think Russia wants to sell a lot more gas too. It's not like uh, I, it's not like they don't want to, uh, you know, to make money here. It's uh, so so. Yes, they, they they would like to sell more gas. Consumers would like to have more gas and more supply options. Certainly, there's going to be a lot more LNG. If you're if we're talking in a 2030 timeframe, there's going to be a lot more LNG supply in the market by mid-decade. And the kind of situation we had in 2018 and 2019 before COVID could easily repeat itself mid-decade with that amount of with that amount of uh, incremental volume coming into the market. Because when supply comes into that into the market with that in in that chunky way with such volumes. It takes time for demand to, to catch up. And we, we certainly saw that in 18 and 19 and early parts of 20 before COVID hit. Uh, and, and, and we will continue to get sort of these ups and down cycles because, like I said, the, the new supply, it's almost instantaneous, but the new demand is incremental. And that, and that, that is often, you know, that has been, you know, the case with global gas supply demand balances for as long as I can remember. Yeah. Um... I uh, had John Kemp, energy analyst, uh, Reuters on on a previous show, and he was talking about the danger of extrapolating from the present into the future, and particularly in a oh, sure. just described as a very volatile market and one that's prone to these these kind of super cycles. These kind of easily get caught up in the moment and think, well, what what's next? But it, it could be just around the corner, right? The next the next swing. Right. No, I I totally agree with what you said, John Kemp said because you you. The, the the people who are investing in new supply are not the same people investing in new demand, and those two things to match those two things up is very difficult. And 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 you know before before all this happened, and you know we were in the weaker period, and I I had long been saying that you know the that the producers of LNG and the producers of gas have to think much more about investing farther downstream, you know, in midstream and downstream in how the gas is going to be consumed. Because that, up until you know our, our, our current issue and, and current current place here, what was the major issue? There was a lot more gas. There's certainly plentiful gas reserves around the world that can be developed at you know at financially advantageous numbers. But 
there, the, the number of options for burning, and particularly with renewables coming into the market as aggressively as it is, has really, really changed. I, you know, we could probably go over the past 20 years and every year we're probably, our long-term growth for, for gas uh, growth-wise has probably been cut more years than not. I mean, it's still going to grow, but, but, uh, but there is a competitive force out there uh, between renewables and battery storage and other things that had cut into to demand growth. And that issue, I, you know, I think will come back, you know, once, every, once the dust settles here in, in, in what's going on in the present. And it's still kind of a structural issue for gas. And, you know, longer term, gas to me at the end of the day still has to be priced at coal plus carbon parity, you know, in, in that kind of range, wherever it is in the world, in order to act as a, a substitution fuel against coal, which is really the place where it has the most advantageous way to uh, to, to grow going forward. I, I've said this, I said this in other podcasts, but I'll say it in this one is that like my, my favorite little meme on this is to say, you know, the most expensive form of gas supply is LNG, and it's trying to compete in the most competitive form of gas demand, which is which is power generation. And threading that needle for the gas industry is is going to continue to be tough going forward, and even more so if gas, you know, as gas takes on a, a broader uh, role and broader mandate as an intermittency fuel. Yeah, well, that that question of investing downstream. I think we do see some of the kind of portfolio players doing it in emerging markets to kind of stimulate yes, new new demand. I agree, but but I think the volumes there are, are quite small, and we don't see it certainly in, in Europe. Um, there, I think there's a there's more more of a kind of open question, if you like, about where where demand is going here. Right. Yeah. No. It's 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 you know it's right now because of what's going on. It's kind of like been pushed under the rug a bit, but it's a, it's it is definitely a longer term issue. Uh, because the gas cannot cannot have too high of a price, all the, and if it does, all you know alternatives will be seized or, or looked at, you know, versus the gas. So it, it's it's again, like I said, you know, we have to get to a place with the gas market if it wants to grow, that is what what we call a bearable price, you know, that that it, that is somewhere in the ranges that I talked about earlier, and that's where we yeah. see it. Yeah. Um, just to remind people listening that this is an interactive podcast, feel free to call in if you want to ask Ira any questions about what we've been talking about. Um, I, I, I can keep talking for ages, um, but I, I know you're uh, I only after half an hour of your time. Ira. Lord knows, you know, Lord knows, you know, I can too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, one thing I did want to ask you, Ira, is um, do, do you have a view of, of market design? So in, in Europe, the we we have this kind of pay as clear mechanism where the the marginal supply source sets the price for other sources of power that are that are dispatching into the market, and and so just with a tiny kind of sliver of expensive gas at the margin sets an expensive price for for all the kind of zero marginal cost generators like like wind and solar and renewables. Um, right. I, I, what, what what do you think of that? Is is that like a sustainable model under which to operate a market that's decarbonizing supposedly quite rapidly this decade? I do. I mean, listen, the role of gas is changing. Like I said, you know, it, you know, the future of gas 20 years ago, if a podcast, if podcasts existed 20 years ago, and we were having this discussion would have been baseload power gas, right? It would have just been 24 seven, burn the gas electricity. Now kind of the future of gas is kind of like is, is, is edging more towards those four or five hours a day 
you know, for, for various reasons or for it, intermittency or for the, it's, its role is evolving. And so how it's looked at on a seasonal basis, on a daily basis, how, how a CCGT even operates is going to have to, you know, look, look, look very, very different in the future. Because I do believe, certainly, that renewables are not going to stop growing. They're going to grow because uh, because government policy is going to support it. They're going to grow because China is going to be continue to produce more solar panels, and and whomever in the world is building the world's wind turbines are going to keep producing wind turbines. So it's going to continue, and so the role of gas, particularly in terms of growth, is going to shift from this sort of baseload role to a seasonal role, of course, because in China, residential commercial demand is going up, but most other places, it's really about power generation and what role it's going to play in power generation. And maybe initially it'll have a baseload role, but as, but as renewables penetrates, you know, other markets around the world and not just the larger ones, but the smaller ones that you mentioned, the, 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 the way gas is priced and perceived in the market is going to have to change as well. And in some ways it, it it, it could it could be very you know bullish or positive for price because you know you know storage is kind of a premium market and so if you're if you're supplying a service that you know that it, that is supplying sort of a, a role of intermittency in a lot of ways you can charge more when you look at storage or when you look at even even LNG storage or short term LNG storage in the history of it in Europe or even in the U.S. you know when 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 things get really cold or when you know when demand is really high. You can make enough money in a week, you know, to, to justify storing gas for two or three years, you know, on a very small scale. But but that's going to that's going to become a bigger thing in the future for gas in terms of how the gas is consumed going forward. And that, to me, from a market design perspective, is something that that obviously needs to be addressed everywhere, not just not and not just in developing markets or growth markets, but also in, you know, more saturated markets like Europe and the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I mean, I, I'm not an expert on these things. But when, I, when I look at this this concept of um, of, of marginal pricing, and the, the like, the the kind of lower running or utilization rates that that gas is likely to have over the course of every subsequent year, then they're going to have to recover those costs over fewer running hours. Exactly. So yeah. So, so how 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 do you like in order to do that in a marginal pricing situation, you just wait for the price to go up. At which point you calculate that's the price at which I I switch on. Um, but that means that you're going to have more kind of volatility in the pricing space, uh, and and also kind of more periods where you don't have fossil fuels setting the price. So you have like maybe zero wholesale costs or wholesale prices, which is not good for renewables either because they can't recover the costs that they can when fossil fuels are dispatching. Right. So you're having to pay for the gas for the periods as much when you're not using it as when you are. And that's the, that's sort of the the tricky formula going forward here, which, you know, I, I don't envy the utilities of the world to have to figure this out. It's not, it's not an easy, it, 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 it's not something that's easily solved. Yeah, absolutely. It's very highly complex. Um, Ira, uh, it's, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks, thanks so much for your time and sharing your insights. Um, uh, and thanks everybody for listening. Uh, uh, tune in again this time next week for another episode of the podcast. Thanks a lot. Oh, well, thank you, Seb. And uh, thanks for having me. And uh, it, was, it was a really nice conversation. Take care. Likewise. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.